The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Earlier this year, uh, we signed our kids up for soccer, and there was an email that came out begging parents to come and coach the kids, that they were short many coaches, and they needed head coaches and assistant coaches. And so um, after uh, much contemplation, I decided, okay, I'm going to be an assistant coach for my son's soccer team. And I found out that the term assistant coach is just a fancy name for head babysitter. Um, Because basically my role as assistant coach is when the kids are on the sideline to make sure that they don't get injured. Because there's a better chance of them getting injured on the sideline than there is on the field. I see heads nodding, yes. I mean, they are doing crazy things. They are practicing karate on one another. Uh, They are wrestling. Uh, earlier this year, they were trying to get a banana peel stuck up in a tree and everyone was cheering, go banana, go banana. I mean, it's this past week, uh, there was one, one, one kid who was having a particularly rough week and, uh, we were playing at Dan's elementary, if you know where that is. And he kept kicking his ball into the long marshy grass and then he'd run in and chase and get it and bring it out. And I tell him, quit doing that. You're going to get ticks. And then I'd explain what ticks were. But then he would grab the grass, and he would chew on it, and he would spit it in kids' faces. And so multiple times, please quit spitting in kids' faces. Well, we put him in the game, and he'd get in the game, and he would just stand there, and he wouldn't do anything. And so we'd bring him out, and we'd be like, what's wrong? Why aren't you moving? He goes, I don't like running. (laughs) And so anyway, so he's there on the sideline, and he's interrupting the coaches and all these things, just having a really hard day. Finally, his father comes around the field, and he asks us, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. He, just, he doesn't want to play, and, uh, you know, he's just having trouble focusing today. And so the dad tried to help him out for a good 15 minutes or so. Really, nothing changed. And finally, finally, the dad said, well, we forgot to give him his medicine today. And uh, did I get an amen? <laughs> Wait, does someone want to come up and share? <laughs> Uh, yep. A teacher. Yes, a teacher. And so um, I was reminded of a very important lesson that day, that medicine does not have its effect on you. It does not transform you. It does not help you if you only know about it, right? If you, if you know its properties, if you know what it looks like, if you know what it does, It's of no help to you. The only way the medicine can be of help is if you ingest it, if you swallow it, if it works its way into your bloodstream, into whatever part of your body needs healing. In the book of Colossians, which we finished today, we have seen many glorious truths about Jesus Christ. Just to give a brief overview, in chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is a superior Savior, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is preeminent over all things, that he is preeminent over his creation, which he created, he sustains on a daily, minute-by-minute basis, and that he is the goal of it, that all the earth will sing his praises. We learn that Christ is preeminent over his church, that he purchased the church with his own blood, that he has sustained it throughout the centuries. And again, that he is the goal of it as we live for his glory. We also saw that Christ is preeminent over redemption, that he 
is the author of salvation and the sustainer of salvation and the completer of our salvation. We go on to Colossians 2 and we learn that Christ is not only a superior Savior, he is a sufficient Savior. That we may not wander off into these different legalisms of whether they be religious or worldly to try to prove ourselves to God or to gain God's favor. We don't need to enter in into these these crazy religious experiences in order to know the presence of God, that all we need to do is cling to the head, Jesus Christ. And so he is a superior savior. He is a sufficient savior. And then in chapter three, there is a turn and we are told what now should be our response and in reflection of who Christ is and what he has done. How now shall we live? And once again, we are reminded that we were dead in Christ and brought to life in Christ. That we are to put off our old self and our sinful nature and put on our new self in Christ. That we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him. And then we get to Colossians chapter 4. And we get to the passage we see today. And, and the passage we're going to read today is a passage that is a testimony of transformation. Of people who did not just hear the truths about Christ, but consumed them. And let them work into their heart, into their soul, through their actions, through what they cherish. And consequently, it transformed their life. It transformed their world. And it changed all of human history. And these are just ordinary people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would please open up to Colossians chapter 4. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 985. If you are in the Children's Bible, it's page 1495. And again, what we are going to see today are living, breathing testimonies of transformation. Of those who did not just study Christ, but who internalized him, who trusted in him for their salvation. This is Paul's gospel farewell. Colossians 4, we'll start in verse Seven, and read to the end. Tychicus will let you all, excuse me, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Damas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the the letter from Laodicea and say to 
Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this gospel farewell, Lord, may we not only remember the truths of Christ intellectually, but that they would transplant deep into our souls. That they would transform who we are and who we live for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At first glance of this passage, it kind of reads like that acknowledgments section at the beginning of a book. You know that, that part that you never read um, unless you know the person? Uh, I actually thought about maybe titling this sermon, the passage that Chad didn't want to preach last week. Or, uh, or maybe even the passage I didn't want to preach this week but had to. We so often skip over these final farewells, and yet there is important examples and instruction for us here. These are living, breathing examples of what the gospel does when it is internalized. So the question I want to ask today is this. How do you know if Christ has become a part of you? How do you know if Christ dwells in you? How do you know if the gospel has taken root in your heart and in your life? How do you know? Well, the answer is if you have a testimony of transformation. Because Christ does not come into a life and leave it unchanged. And so these are the areas that I want to point out today that Christ and his preeminence and his glory and his majesty and his union with us transforms within us. The gospel transforms our efforts. The gospel transforms our relationships. And the gospel transforms our priorities. Let's start with the first one. The gospel, Christ himself, transforms our efforts. When a person is consumed by Christ, united to Christ, we are moved into action. In verse 11, it says, as fellow workers for the kingdom of God. What is so neat to see in this passage is that there are many different workers. And what happens is God takes the gifts that he has given to them and he utilizes them for his kingdom. And so let's look at a couple of these. First, there is Tychicus in verse 7. It says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was a native of Asia where Colossae was. And his kingdom responsibility was to be a messenger for the Apostle Paul. Paul was in prison in Rome at the time. There was no postal system up at that time. And so his purpose was to be a faithful and trustworthy servant to bring to the Colossians this letter. He was also the one who carried the letters to the Ephesians and the Philippians. Now, this might seem like a menial task to many of us. He certainly doesn't get the, the recognition that Paul does. But this is an important task for the kingdom of God. You see, he is a very ordinary hero. Apart from him, we wouldn't have many of the letters of the New Testament. And so we see Tychicus is moved into action by the gospel. We also see the same of Epaphras. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, he was from Colossae, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. While Tychicus was a messenger for the kingdom of God, Epaphras was a church planter for the kingdom of God. He grew up in Colossae. He was a native of Colossae. He went to Ephesus, maybe for business, and at that point heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul's proclamation. He came back and he planted Colossae, the church at Colossae. And so he was a church planter for the kingdom of God, but he was also a prayer warrior. Whenever this letter was written, he could not be with the Colossian church. And so he continued his ministry to them through prayer. We read that he was always struggling, literally wrestling in agony, fervently contending on their behalf in prayer. Epaphras' concern and love for the Colossians is an example for all of us that we are to pray as he prayed. That they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Ligon Duncan points out that in Epaphras' little prayer, he sums up the whole book of Colossians, the whole emphasis of the book of Colossians, that believers would be complete in Christ and that they would know what it is to be assured of that and filled in the will of God. And Paul says, Epaphras is doing that for you. He is a prayer warrior for the kingdom of God. One more, we see Nympha just in passing in verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Nympha served the kingdom of God simply through hospitality, by opening her house and welcoming the church. Again, she may not receive the accolades of Paul, but she is a vital part of the kingdom of God. And the gospel has moved her into action. And so what we see is that all of these people, when the gospel is internalized, it moves them, it fuels them into working For the kingdom of God. At home, I have several gas cans for different, different, uh, I don't know what they've called, tools. What's, What's a good word? Equipment, thank you, for different equipment. And I have this one gas can, and it has the good stuff. You know, there's there's no ethanol in it. It's it's 100% pure grade, good stuff for all the small engine equipment. And when I take that gas and I, I, I pour it into these different, equipments. (laughs) equipments. <laughs> I don't know what the right word is. When you pour it into these different things, what happens? They come alive. They come alive and they go to work and they do the thing that they were created to do. And so when I pour this gas into the lawnmower, it spins the blade to cut the grass. When I pour this gas into the snowblower, it, it swirls the, the thingy to, to shoot the snow, right? When I, when I pour the gas into the wood splitter, it extends the arm to split the wood. When I pour it into the power washer, it does something to make water shoot very hard. If I put it into my car, it make my car wheel spin and drive down the road. And so what you see is that this gas, this fuel gives life. It gives energy according to what that machine was created to do. The reality is that God has gifted us all very differently. But when he puts the fuel of the gospel into our hearts and into our souls, it moves us into action to act according to who God created us to be. And so I guess the question for you is this. Who has God created you to be? What has God created you to do? What are you good at? What are you gifted at? What comes naturally to you that is so difficult for other people? What, do you, what are you passionate about? 
It's the gospel fueling you towards action. So we see the gospel transforms our efforts and our actions. Secondly, we see that the gospel transforms our relationships. Look at verse 10 with me. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, we need a little bit of backstory for this. This Mark here in this passage is a guy known as John Mark. John Mark accompanied Paul in his first missionary journey. And when Paul set out for his second missionary journey, John Mark abandoned him. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 13, and we don't, we don't understand much of the situation. It just says that John Mark left Paul and went home to Jerusalem. But as we continue to read and we, and we read in Acts 15, we see that this didn't settle well with Paul. In fact, Paul and Barnabas got into a heated discussion and argument whether or not to bring John Mark with them. And because of that, they divided. And Barnabas took John Mark on one missionary journey, and Paul took Silas on another missionary journey. And so whatever happened in their relationship evidently had hurt Paul very deeply. But then we get here to Colossians chapter 4, and and again, it's something that we probably read over. But what we see here is that Paul and Mark have been reconciled. Paul tells the Colossians to welcome him, meaning listen to his teaching. He is a trustworthy teacher. The gospel that Paul was preaching, the gospel that Mark was preaching, was a gospel of forgiveness. And it was a gospel of forgiveness that they themselves have experienced, enabling them to forgive and be reconciled with one another. You know, I don't know about you, but I think forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do in the entire world. But forgiveness should be a mark of the Christian, a mark that the gospel has penetrated deep within our hearts. Forgiveness is so difficult because it is so costly. Sometimes forgiveness costs us the opportunity to seek revenge on a person. Sometimes forgiveness costs us the opportunity of weaponizing their sin against them when they attack us. Sometimes forgiveness costs us the opportunity for resentment and bitterness. William Barclay, in his commentary on the letter to the Hebrews, says this. He says, there is one eternal principle which will be valid as long as the world lasts. The principle is this. Forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. There was a price of a broken heart to be paid. Divine forgiveness is costly too. God is love, but God is holy. Sin must have its punishment or the very structure of life is disintegrated. And God alone can pay that terrible price that is necessary before men can be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is the most costly thing in the world. Maybe there is someone in your life that you are struggling to forgive. Maybe you think it should be easy. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is costly. But the gospel reminds us that no matter what the cost it is for you to forgive another person, it costs God more to forgive you. 
the forgiveness of God for our sin and rebellion was at the cost of his own son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth and lived the perfect life. And yet at the cross died for our sin in which God poured out his wrath that we deserve upon his own son. You see, our forgiveness is beyond expensive. And because we have been forgiven much by God in Christ at the great price of his own son, we can forgive others. And forgiveness is a mark of a Christian. One who has experienced the forgiveness of God is able to forgive others. We also see the transformation of our relationships as we move forward into verse 11. We read, and Jesus, who is called justice, these are only men, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. It's interesting here, Paul points out that these are men of the circumcision. This means these were Jewish men, and they were Jewish men that were ministering to Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. That's all that it means. Ordinarily, Jewish men and Gentiles did not run together. Typically, they ate at separate tables. They would, they would, they would avoid one another and come in contact as little as possible. And what we see here is the gospel of Jesus Christ gave them a heart for the Gentiles. And they joined Paul in his ministry towards them. It transformed their heart to love someone that they normally would not. This past weekend, I was in Austin doing a wedding. And I don't know if you know this, but the motto of Austin, Texas, is keep Austin weird, all right? And they were doing a great job at that, I might add. And so what was so cool to see was going to my sister's church and seeing this blend of people coming together, Hispanics, Caucasians, rich, poor, old, young, and their union to one another was Jesus Christ. It was so beautiful to see them holding hands and praying, greeting each other with a hug. These were not people that they would ordinarily hang out with, but because of the gospel of Christ, it has given them a heart for these one another's, those that are not like them. You know, the gospel gives us a heart to be with those who we would not normally be with. Maybe those who are marginalized in society. Maybe someone who has completely different interests in us. Whatever it might be, the gospel transforms our relationships. Finally, we see the gospel transforms our priorities. You know, all of us are born knowing or thinking that we should look out for number one. Number one being ourselves. Matter of fact, you probably heard the saying, you need to look out for number one. We are so obsessed with taking care of ourselves. You know, from infancy, we know how to say mine. We know how to to hoard things to ourselves. We we have to be taught as children to share because it doesn't come naturally. Even in our teenage years, we typically hang with the same clique of people that might boost our self-esteem. We're so... We're so tempted not to reach out to those who might be uncool or bullied. As adults, we spend much of our energy and much of our money building our own kingdoms. And so taking care of ourselves, number one, comes very naturally to us. But what we see consistently through this passage and consistently for those who have internalized the gospel of Jesus Christ is that their priorities are rearranged. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, someone comes to Jesus and they ask, and they say, Teacher, 
what is the greatest commandment? And he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That becomes our top priority, to love God. And then he says, this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it in nature, not in priority. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see this new prioritization where we're no longer living for ourselves, that we have a new number one, that God becomes the focus of our priorities, that people become second and that we become third. We see this throughout this passage. You look again at Tychicus in verse 7. Paul says he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Paul acknowledges that Tychicus recognizes his status, his primary status is that he is a servant of the Lord. This is the term used of a servant of the king who was, who was to do the king's bidding, who was to do whatever the king wanted, who was to please the king. And what we learned here is that Tychicus put God first to serve him above all else. And then in verse 8, Paul describes how he was sent to them for this purpose, that they, he might encourage their hearts. And so as Tychicus elevates God to first priority in his life, he becomes a man that wants to serve and encourage other people. We see also in Epaphras, verse 12, Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. Again, this is his primary identity, that he belongs to Christ, that he's a child of God, that he is a servant of Christ. And out of that priority to number one, he goes to serve others. We read again in verse 12, that he is always struggling, wrestling, agonizing on their behalf in prayer, that they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. And Paul bears witness that he has worked hard for them and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. On the morning of June 7th, 1958, the Air National Guard jet precision team called the Minutemen were flying in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base just outside Dayton, Ohio. And after a routine maneuver, Captain John Ferrer, his plane started rolling out of control and was in trouble. And as he started to descend, he started to head right towards a neighborhood, and his colonel gave him a command over the microphone, bail out, Johnny, bail out. A section from the Denver Post writes this. It says, there was still plenty of time, still plenty of room for him to bail out. The colonel even issued the command twice more. Each time he was answered by a blip of smoke. He grasped the sense of it immediately. Johnny couldn't reach the mic button on the throttle because he had both hands tugging on a control stick that was locked full throw right. But the smoke button was on the stick, and he was answering the only way he could, squeezing it to tell Williams he thought he could pull out, that he couldn't let his airplane go into the houses of the neighborhood. Captain Johnny, Johnny's jet, hit the ground, equidescent from, meaning in between, four houses. There was hardly any place other than that one backyard garden that he could have hit without killing people. You see, this pilot who trusted in Christ knew that he would be to put God first, to put other seconds and to put himself third, and it cost him his life. 
at a camp I worked at, they told this story frequently, and they had T-shirts written up that said, I'm third, knowing that our priorities are rearranged when the gospel takes plantation into our heart, that God becomes first, that others become second, and that we become third. And so the question is, who is first in your life? Whose kingdom are you working for? Is it for your kingdom? Is it for the kingdom of your company? Or is it for the kingdom of God? The gospel reprioritizes our life to put God first, others second, and ourselves third. So how do we know if Christ is in us? How do we know if the gospel has rooted itself in our hearts? It's through testimonies of transformation that Christ has transformed our efforts. He has transformed our relationships and he has transformed our priorities. Let me end with one more person from this passage. His name is Demas and he is just, he's just, he's just uh, alluded to here in passing. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Damas is a very interesting story because Damas worked alongside Paul, probably one of the greatest preachers and teachers of all time, guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Damas would have heard the truths of the glory of Christ, but he never internalized it. We read later in 2 Timothy 4.10, the Apostle Paul says that Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Damas... Number one was himself. He studied Christ and knew about Christ intellectually, but he never received Christ into his heart. He never accepted him into the death of his soul. You know, some of you come to church. Some of you maybe ascribe to the doctrines of Christianity. But you don't know Christ. You don't know him personally. You don't know him intimately. You have not won him into your heart and into your soul. There's a saying, you may have heard it before, it says standing in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in the garage makes you a car. If you're here today, the question is out to you, have you experienced this testimony of transformation of God in you and working in you and through you? If you have not, my plea is this, that you would stop studying Christ merely, that you would stop merely investigating Christ and that you would invite Christ into your heart, and into your soul. This is our testimony of transformation. Let's pray. Lord God, as we, as we think about this mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, of our union with Jesus Christ, Lord God, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know the glory and majesty of your grace and love, that you would reveal to them today, God. That they would see and know how good Christ is. And that they would not only know him intellectually, but that they would know him personally in the depths of their heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.